start out with the psalm in the morning, and we will have uh, a couple of psalms today. So the, the psalms are, uh, are songs, and they're uh, in a part of the, uh, what, what's called the writings, the wisdom literature, or the response part of the literature of uh, where the Bible is God's revelation of his person, his character, his... Uh, his nature, his plan, what he's up to, to humanity. The wisdom literature is the human response back. And that's why we identify uh, so often with the wisdom literature in Psalms. And uh, so uh, this morning I, I wrote a two-verse psalm. Uh, it's a, a psalm of David. Uh, <laughs> I encourage you, write your own psalms. Right? This is a psalm of David. And in, in typical Davidic style... Uh, it's got a very long introduction, and it's only two verses long. Uh, this is a, a psalm uh, in response uh, to God's love and to the love of his wife, uh, and to honor God and, uh, and Jesus being our Savior, our Lord, and our King, and to honor my wife being my greatest blessing, my best friend, and my wife. Um, and with that introduction, I'd like to give you the song. And in traditional uh, Hebrew style, it's sung. Right? Oh, this is my love you song. It isn't very long. Hit! That's it. Two verses. <laughs> you know, a lot of times we make it really complicated when we tell the Lord and our spouse that we love them. Uh, <laughs> hear it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'll, I'll take you to uh, <laughs> I'll take you to Psalm 130. <laughs> this is in the uh, Song of Ascents, and I know that uh, uh, I've picked on this psalm before. But it's where we're at today. Would somebody like to read Psalm 130? Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice. 
If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, could we stand? Now, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul has waited, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than the watchman in the morning, indeed, more than the watchman in the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, and with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him there is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel for all his from all his iniquities again. Amen. This is. Pardon? Well, this is, a, this is actually a, a good point because that leads us in to our connection point from last week to this week. Um, one of the things that we observed when we looked at the story of Abigail was um, how she shared in the corporate uh, guilt of her household. And so she came and, and offered herself. Uh, as an intercessor and uh, as one that would take the punishment for her household, even though she wasn't individually uh, at fault as far as what happened in that account. Uh, she was part of the corporate uh, family that was at fault. And so what you see here is uh, you see the language of Israel or Jacob and his sons and their sons and their sons and sons and sons. And so you have multiple generations such that Israel is being treated as a corporate entity here and not as an individual. And it's very common for us when we see the personal pronouns like that, his or hers, that we ascribe an individual uh, assignment rather than a corporate assignment. So this is a corporate assignment and that... Uh, to Israel. To Israel. And I think that... Uh, as we understand uh, Christian theology today, we can broaden that to the whole corporate uh, uh, being of humanity, right? So all of humanity. So in that sense, um, all of us are to place our hope in the Lord because with the Lord there is loving kindness for all of us. And that's why I started with the I love you song. Uh, and with him is abundant redemption. He is our Savior. And he will redeem all of us from all of our iniquities. So uh, that's how I would maybe re-paraphrase that with a, a knowledge of uh, corporate versus individual. Um, <clears throat> where we left off last week was my uh, third attempt to get through to chapter 26 of 1 Samuel. And I, I want to ask you, um, what is it uh, that David is learning? I mentioned that... Uh, this section of Samuel is about the formation of David in preparation for being king. And it's actually a pretty uh, significant period of time. It occurs over about 14 years. And uh, from, from beginning to end before he actually assumes uh, the, the role of, of king actively in Hebron. So in that period of formation, what's David learning? Submission. Submission. Learned that God is really working in the details, kind of behind the scenes, through all these things that happened 
He's, that's right. He's learning that God is there working, whether he's aware of it or not. So he's learning to trust in the Lord. What else is he learning? He's, uh, he's learning what true leadership looks like and how important it is uh, that a leader be above reproach. We see that explicitly called out in the New Testament. What else is he learning? From personal experience, I think he's learning patience. He's learning patience. Um, one of the things my son said, that, uh, said to me recently, he said, yeah... About three years ago, I, I prayed for patience. And I realized I was lacking patience. I've had nothing but trials ever since. And I said, yeah, exactly. That's how you get patient. <laughs> uh, so be careful what you pray for. Uh, but actually, he is learning patience. He's learning to wait upon the Lord. He's learning that the Lord is, is there, whether he senses him or um, hears directly from him or not and that he needs to wait on God's timing. A very significant lesson that he's learning. Yeah, when, uh, in several situations, the men that he's leading want to, uh, well, fight. They want to kill him. Yep. So, I mean, they had a lot of opportunities, and yet he's still honoring God, recognizing that Saul is still there. That's right. Uh, he's had to, you know, must be pre- pretty tough duty to keep all his troops in, you know, they're after him all the time, and all they do is run and hide, and yet they're supposed right. to be warriors. Right. All fighting men. Well, and they are. These are the, yeah, the mighty yet, men. And yet they're not going to be fighting. Right. And uh, <clears throat> we need to uh, appreciate that the people that were with David, the 600 uh, men, and their wives and children that were under David's care as they're out here wandering in the wilderness uh, down in in this area and further south. Um, Their lives were at risk as much as David's because they stood between David and Saul. And they did it by choice, and so their lives were put at risk, and and they were wanting to end that, that risk, right? So they wanted to raise their swords as well. And we see David, as he's learning and he's expressing leadership skills that are being honed, um, telling them, no, you have to wait on God. You have to wait on God's time. You know, that's, that's the kind of message I'd like to hear from a leader. One who says, you know, I've been really looking at what God's doing and checking out his fingerprints and the direction of his footsteps that we're following. And I think we need to, to trust that he's going in the right direction here and not take things into our own hands. Because that's what David is being challenged. <clears throat> the trial is, take things into your own hands. And yet he's uh, using all of the skills that he has available to him. He's using his intellect. He's using his uh, physical resources. Um, he's using his leadership skills, natural abilities. Um, and he's using all of that, uh, but waiting on the Lord. And this is a tension that we experience in our lives. Right? That we want to take things into our own hands. I know how to make this happen. And yet there are times when God says, well, that may be very true, but you need to wait. 
And so that's one of the very significant things that David's learning. So let's take a look, because this is the perfect lead-in to chapter 26, and we're actually going to get there today. Let's go ahead and read through chapter 26. Uh, This is kind of the close on this, as David then marches towards his ascent into the king's role and Saul's final demise. So let's uh, go ahead and read through chapter 26. It says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road, and David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had come after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to a place where Saul had camped. David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, that's commander of uh, Saul's army, and Saul was laying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Very classic Saul style, right? He's going to be in the safest spot in the middle and put all of his men around him. And he puts his, his uh, three-star general right next to him um, so that, you know, he's, he's safe. He thinks so anyway. Then David <clears throat> said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. <clears throat> A very significant thing that you see in that statement. Who will go down with me? Uh, Something you want to pay attention to and come back to. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying around him. uh, Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please... Let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? You'd think he'd just learn something. David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down uh, into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let's go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the mountain at a distance with a large area between them. David called to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the lord lives, all of you must surely die, because you did not guard your lord, the king's anointed, or the lord's anointed. And now, see where the king's spear is, and the jug of water that was at his head. Then Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. And he also said, Why then is my lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? 
Now, therefore, please let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if, uh, if, it is, <clears throat> if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord. For they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. David replied, Behold, the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and for his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointing. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day... So may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distresses. Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. So what's happening in this story? Who Who can give me the summary now that I read through the whole account? Pardon? same story but a different response right so you see David is uh, having the same trial repeatedly and Saul is having the same trial repeatedly right and Saul pretty much behaves the same way every time but David is growing and progressing as he moves through this what are some of the things that he said Sean? what do you think David was thinking in going down to the camp well, <clears throat> that's a really good question. <clears throat> okay, so here's here's a uh, pardon. He's not just hiding; he's being proactive. That's right. He's going down there with a few choice men. He doesn't know. He knows he's not going to kill him. Well, so, okay, so he knows he's not going to kill him. What's he doing going down to the camp? That's a good question. I'm checking it out. Uh, he's being yeah. proactive. He's not just hiding. Well, it says that David from afar spied out where Saul was laying and where Abner was laying and knew the lay of the camp so he had the equivalent of the you know night vision goggles and binoculars of the day and was checking out doing surveillance on uh, Saul and his 3,000 choice marines his fighting men that Saul has continued to you know hone in tracking David and uh, and David says who will go with me an individual into the middle of this camp, right? That's nuts. Why would you do that? Especially if you had no intent of actually destroying the enemy. Is he talking? To protect 600 people that he was with, that they were with him? 
I don't know that I heard all of that because I'm a little hard of hearing, but I'll paraphrase and tell me if it's right. Um, David had the welfare of the people that had been put in his charge in view and recognized that going in to address this problem face on, even though he didn't know what action he was going to take, he knew he wasn't going to kill him because it's the Lord's anointed. Nonetheless, he was putting himself in harm's way for the protection of his people. Is that what you said? That's a very, very insightful observation. That's very good. Yes? Uh, mine wasn't quite as insulting as the comment. It would be like the modern equivalent of taking a can of spray paint and writing, David was here. <laughs> yeah. So, so David, was, David was really a tagger. And, uh, and he said, hey, who will go tag Saul's tent with me? Uh, so we can let Saul know that we're on his turf. Uh, I think that there's some, uh, some significance to that as well. In that um, I, I think that the uh, idea that was just expressed and I don't know your name, I'm sorry, and I don't have my glasses on, so I can't see clearly. But um, <laughs> that the idea that David had learned that he had a greater responsibility than just himself, that he had a responsibility for his whole community, those that entrusted their lives to him, and that he didn't know what the resolution was going to be, but he had confidence in the Lord to make that resolution. Um, and that he was being proactive. So these are all words that have come up. Uh, in addition, um, he knew from a previous experience when he cut off the corner of Saul's robe that uh, the mercy and submission that David expressed to the king that was reigning um, was persuasive and at least that day causing the king not to kill him. So I think that there's merit in all of these ideas and, and actually are probably factoring into why would David go into the middle of this camp um, with not having the intent of, of killing the general or the king um, but he was still nonetheless trying to affect God's resolution uh, through his participation yes and isn't he wanting to finally put this to an end I mean doesn't he want to stop running he, he and, does and Maybe he's thinking that, you know, the first time Saul had mercy, maybe the next time he'll have more mercy, and maybe he'll figure out that you don't need to be chasing me anymore. Just let me be. Perhaps. Um, I, my comment to that was I would be, I think David's actually learned that he can't trust Saul to do what he says. No. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to see that come up in the next chapter. But I think you're right. He does want it to end. Growing weary of this, and it uh, continues to push him further out uh, at the risk of actually being captured, killed, and, and his men being harmed. The, the first time it was, it was Saul's men and Saul, the second time it was Saul's army. Yeah. Okay. And it's certainly uh, you know, puts a different perspective for his, you know, against his enemies. Because they're just following Saul, but they still see an act of, of mercy 
some behavior. I like the contrast between Abishai, Abishai yep. and Abner. Yes. I mean, you've got this man that is obviously going to lay down his life. Yep. And then you've got Abner, who's left to rest in his yeah, and, and you're going to read more about Abishai and Abner and, uh, and Joab, and it's going to get more soap opera-ish here in a little bit. Um, but it is remarkable that Abishai said, yeah, you want to go into the middle of the camp? Uh, insane mission, zero chance of success, count me in. <laughs> like, give me the war. <laughs> They they were hanging around a man who was being formed uh, for uh, leadership in God's kingdom and God's economy, David, and that God's crafting David's life in such a way um, to give David the opportunity to respond and follow. And so they're observing this. They're observing what's happening in David's life. They're observing how he pulled out his sword and said, let's chop up the ball and all of his men and not leave anybody left, you know. And then they're observing how David learns and changes in that. So they're absolutely affected and probably their faith is growing as a result of David expressing his faith. And that's a, a lesson that we would want to take away as an application. When we walk faithfully, people notice. We may think nobody cares, nobody notices, and that this is like whistling in the dark. But, number one, God is constantly working in you, but he's also working in the world at large, and he does it through his people. And so that's a very significant observation. Somebody else had a hand up back here. Yes? I just wonder if, what your opinion is on, I think maybe David is when we have the big picture, Person. 
and he's uh, not holding them corporately responsible. He's rather trying to show mercy. And, uh, and that's a very significant thing. And we understand that as all of mankind is guilty before God, Jesus died for each one of us individually. And, uh, and so you're seeing that being formed in David, that whole concept of who God is and who he is before God and part of God's plan. I say that because I look at the language that's in here. Did anybody, as we were reading through some of this, did any particular statements that David made or Abner made or Abishai made stand out? What I find interesting, did he ask him before, you know what I mean, more or less, did he kind of accuse Saul a little bit more? And like here, he says, if I'm guilty, you know, is it man doing it? Is it God doing it? He doesn't ever accuse Saul of being the one that's doing it, you know what I mean? And right. so, like with his statements there, you know what I mean, you kind of wonder, okay, is, is that leading Saul somewhere? I don't know. Um, you, you see in David a developing diplomacy. Um, if you want to um, call somebody to account for something that they're doing that is wrong, that is evil, and in fact, Saul acknowledges it, he says, I have sinned. Um, let me see, where. let's go back to, Saul said, I have sinned, verse 21. So David is going to Saul and saying, you're sinning. Repent, you sinner. And, uh, but he's not doing it in a way where he's trying to rip off Saul's lips. Right? He's learned that there is a way that you can approach a person to um, discuss and reveal the injustice uh, without causing offense. You know, when we bring uh, the gospel to people, what does it say in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, and that's a whole teaching, chapter 2 and chapter 3 in First Peter on submission and how we are to be submitted first to the Lord, but we're also to have that submission and loving kindness towards others uh, to the point of always being ready, having an answer uh, when someone asks what the hope within us is and that we are to express that with gentleness and respect. We're not to blump, you know, thump them on the head with the Bible saying, you're a sinner, repent. That's true. They're a sinner. They need to repent. I'm a sinner. I need to repent. But God comes to me in a very loving, kind way to point it out such that I can respond to that, not in offense, but in uh, gratitude for the grace that he's showing. Um, I like to try to look at things. This is a good chapter maybe to do that. And, and ask yourself, okay, what what is if you were to write a book about, let's say, David on leadership, mm-hmm. what kind of things from this chapter can we observe? Okay, so right. so sorry, I want to point out a few and you Okay, A, he was proactive. Okay, he didn't just wait for Saul to come to him and wipe out his six hundred men. You know, he, right. he was doing something proactive. I don't know exactly why he was doing it, but he was doing it. He was proactive. Then he asked for volunteers. He didn't have to. He could have ordered. I want you, you, and you, and we're going on a little mission here. You know, but he didn't do that. He asked for volunteers. Right. A couple people stepped up and was like, "Well, okay." So we're going to go on this, uh, you pointed out earlier, uh, 
sort of no-win kind of mission, right? Right. <laughs> okay, then he goes down, but the men that he went, went with him were going ho for him, and it's like, okay, if you're not going to kill Saul, I'll kill him for you. Right. And, but, I won't miss. But they're still under his leadership in that they don't do that on their own. They still kind of ask him, and he says, no, far be it from us to do this. Right. Um, the other thing that was interesting is God was in this, and God caused the sleep thing to happen. But it's, it's even more than that. But then, yeah. okay, on top of that, uh-huh. then David calls out all the people with Saul, saying, you guys, okay, what is it, Abner? Mm-hmm. You know, where you're all 3,000 men, yep. you guys are all terrible, because I just walked in, uh-huh. <laughs> and he calls them out. He does. Well, he, he, there he's uh, much more, less diplomatic, mm-hmm. saying, hey, Abner, yeah, your, your life should be forfeit. Because you just didn't protect your king. The Lord's anointed, you know. Yeah. And so what was Abner's chief job? Protect the king. That's right. What was the, the king's chief job? Protect yourself. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the king, Saul set up somebody else to do his job right because he wanted to be protected first what did David do he said I'm going right into the middle of the camp right so you said he was proactive why was he proactive well that's that's the question that's the question but he was he wasn't laying back and hiding I might have been just okay I got a great hiding place. I know these guys are coming. I'm moving. You know, whatever. Yeah, he knew the caves really well. So, but he's saving lives, like she said. Saving lives. Saving lives. So he saw God's mission in a larger sense, and and I'll I'll get to you. Um, He saw God's mission in a larger sense. He recognized um, that he had an opportunity to join God in His mission, and he recognized that from the very, you know, anointing of Samuel forward. There are, there are particular formate, formative points in David's life, and you, we see these revealed to us, you know, the whole uh, confrontation with the Philistines and Goliath and the whole, you know, trying to soothe Saul and, and all of the things that have occurred throughout this time. Uh, David is getting a larger vision of what God is doing and what his mission is, and he is joining God in that mission. And it is that, I believe, and that alone, that causes David to say, hey, let's do something that's absolutely insane and impossible because God does things that are absolutely insane and impossible. And yet he has a mission that I want to join. And I desire to be a part of that right in the middle of it as close as I can be. And I'll even be humble enough to be corrected in that. Um, so I, I think that that's what you're seeing in David. And that's the first, first point. Now we have a whole bunch of hands up. And I said... It, I think it's, a, it, it's not only an object lesson. David's own group of followers, but each time that David is sparing Saul's life, there are more of the rest of the Israelites present. And in this case, there's 3,000 men, and these are all good soldiers. I mean, they, this, these guys are they're, they're the best that Israel's got. And 
they would all be somebody who would battle it, you know, they would do what they needed to do without a second thought. And now, every one of them will be going back, and to everybody that they meet, everybody they know, they'll say, you know, David could have killed Saul, and he didn't do it. And he said repeatedly, I'm not going to touch you, you're the Lord's anointed. Right. And that more and more people in the country are hearing that, you know, David might be on the run from Saul, but this is kind of a one-sided deal. Because David's not trying to do anything against Saul. Right. Do you think, though, it was a deliberate political attempt for David to, to gain support through injustice? Or do you think David was acting and that was a, a, an interesting side effect? I think it's more of a side effect. But every, every time this goes on, it becomes more obvious to everybody around that David is trying to do what is right, and Saul is pursuing the opposite. Uh, David is trying to do what is right. And what's interesting is when he calls out uh, to Abner and says, you know, your life should be forfeit, you didn't protect the king. And then we ask the question, well, what was Abner's job? What was the king's job? Why was he there to protect the king? Right? Well, um, the, the chief job of those that uh, serve the king is service. Right? That um, we are called first uh, into service. And what that means is, is that we've learned submission. We've placed um, all that God has given us and that is of value underneath the authority of the king. And that's what Abner was doing when he said, I will protect you. Now, King Saul should have never asked that of Abner. That was wrong. But David was saying, you know, the very thing that you signed up to do, you failed in. And uh, so he called him to account on his service. And, uh, and yet that was misplaced. He shouldn't have been called into service to protect Saul. He should have been called into service to protect God's people uh, as, as a subservient of Saul. So I, I think that you see all sorts of subtle complexity. And so if you were to, to look at, to go back to Tim's question, and, and I'll get to you, um, about leadership and some of the leadership that's being displayed here, one of the things that you see skillfully done by David through the formation that he's gone through, is that he has a, a vision. And he's able to communicate that so effectively that he, is, he will go into the middle of a camp and have an argument with Abishai. He says, who will go with me on this crazy, insane mission? Abishai says, oh, okay, I'm with you. And they go in there, and then they're in the middle of the camp when they have this discussion. <laughs> Think about that, yeah. right? What kind of confidence do you have in God and his mission that you would get into an argument with your guy that is you know, boldly going with you? I mean, you'd think you'd be using stealth and all sorts of things. You would not want to disturb the 3,000 around you as you're coming in, Abishai thinks, to kill the king. Right? Um, David is leading because he has a vision of what God's doing, and he's communicating it so effectively that when he says it is not for us to uh, do God's job, and then he lists what God's job is. He says, you know, 
God is going to remove Saul as king. He said he would. He's good to his word. And whether that happens through uh, illness, um, through uh, natural causes, through war, whatever the means, God is going to affect his plan. And that's where we come to understand the sovereignty of God. And that he is, he is accomplishing his purpose. Well, David caught his vision that that's what God was doing. He was redeeming his people. And that he had an opportunity to join him in that. And he cast that vision forward. So we talk about uh, vision casting and leadership. That's one of the things I think we can pull from this. Is that David didn't just do this insane thing uh, specifically because he was trying to get Saul off his back, although he certainly wanted Saul off his back. Uh, and we're going to see that in the next chapter, that David says, in fact, I'll read the first verses, Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. In other words, the risk is going up every day. Um, there is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So he knows that Saul's not going to change. He's seen evidence that Saul's heart is getting harder and harder and harder with every trial. And what David's learning is, with every trial, he has more and more and more confidence in what God is doing in his life. And his ability to operate the way God made him. And so he's using reason here, and he's using logic, and he's using care for his people. And says, you know, God's going to accomplish his mission, let's get safe now which going into the Philistine territory is making <laughs> Nonetheless, you see a, a wisdom there. And so you see that expressed in the leadership of David. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, in God's sovereignty, in verse 12, mm-hmm. so David took the spear and the jug of water beside Saul's head, and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because those sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on that. Yep. And you, so you God see, that's right. And, and, and this is a, a narrator adding this, right? The one who's making editorial comments of, I'm telling you the story about David, right? Oh, and by the way, God was smack dab in the middle of it, right? He, he caused David to have success um, by causing a deep sleep to come over these people such that David could carry on his argument in the midst and that he could uh, uh, make all the choices go and take the spear next to the head of Saul, right? And it's stuck in the ground. Now, if you got something stuck in the ground that's right next to somebody's head, and you start shaking it out, pretty good chance you're going to wake the guy up, right? But this is what's going on in this story. And what you see is the narrator says, oh yeah, that was God. As I was reflecting on what we were talking about here, and specifically the, uh, what was brought before that David did not directly accuse Saul, and kind of talked about the, the generalities of the, uh, really someone type thing. There's an irony that kind of happens later on, and maybe, maybe it's a teaching, if you will. Roll the clock ahead to Bathsheba. And Nathan. And when I read that passage, when, as Nathan's talked about the, the little sheep, that were, the little lamb that was taken, and David's reaction seems so immediate, the immediate reaction of it, I thought, oh, it's God convicting. And then 
as we come back here, this is the method that David used, and later on Nathan used the very same method in describing a difficult situation or not wanting to, to confront directly. And I think that's part of what God was bringing David way back then, even for the message he had to receive. Yeah. And I think that's a, a real keen observation also. For the reason that um, there are times when we actually get that God is working in our lives and communicating to us and we get it. Right? And then we have what I call the seven-day memory. Seven days later, later, that could be something that's totally removed from your life never occurred. You've totally forgotten it. And you need to relearn it. And so... Uh, the Lord will do this in our lives. He'll use things that he has taught us, that we've got, at a later time to reteach us so that we get it again. Right? It's all about um, developing uh, depth in your walk with God. So if we take a look at discipleship and what uh, this narrative account in Samuel tells us about discipleship and walking with the Lord... We can learn a lot. Because we're going to see David make incredibly bonehead mistakes, like the Bathsheba event is one. And, uh, and yet, the Lord uses all of the events of David's life to correct him. David's chief job is to listen and then respond and develop that depth. Oh, yeah, I learned that and I forgot it. And the result of forgetting that led to this. Oh, man, let me make that right. Well, I can't make that right. At least let me never do it again. Right? Um, that's what you see happening in David's life, which is why, in many ways, Samuel is very cyclical. You'll see themes revisited again and again and again. And it's intentional on the part of the author, God, that we need to remember, remember, remember. Right? We need to be reminded of what he's doing all the time. Yes? So, in our last few minutes here, you mentioned discipleship out of this. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, can you develop that a little more? I mean, what, what, are, we, what are you getting at when you say discipleship? What's the meat on that for me? Um, well, my intent is That's to... important for us. Yes, it's absolutely important. And part of what I've been leading up to is this point, so we can start developing that throughout the whole course of Samuel as we get through First and Second Samuel, and the uh, the response that we have as believers. So first, we want to understand the role of faith. Um, faith being not just uh, understanding things that we can't see, right? It's the evidence of things not seen. Right? We, we have that in faith. Um, but it's also um, not the denial of things that we do see. In other words, when God makes something plain to us, we need to pay attention to what he has revealed and have faith in the things that he's revealed that we don't see, but we also need to operate on the things that we do see. And that's where the, the role of discipleship comes in. If you look at a, a book like Matthew, Right, gospel account. It's uh, organized around five teachings, five discourses. The first of which is the longest discourse in all of the New Testament on the law. 
Uh, it's sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount. But we oftentimes misunderstand law and discipleship. I will tell you that Matthew's all about discipleship. It was written to disciples for the purpose of getting depth and strength in their walk uh, as followers of Christ. And, uh, and so we, he, he first wants to address the, the biggest issue that people have, that they will think that discipleship is about following a bunch of rules. Right? He says, no, no, no. It's not about following a bunch of rules. It's about understanding the heart of God. Right? That's what's happening here. The, the narrators of Samuel, three prophets, are helping us understand the heart of God and what it can look like in, as a disciple in responding to the revelation of God's heart, such that you want to have the very heart of God. David was chosen as a leader of God's people because he had a heart after God. I want to know what it means, a heart after God, because that's key to discipleship. It's key to the depth that we're trying to, to plumb here and develop in ourselves, which is why I spent so much time talking about basic theology and the heart and, and the role of that early on. Because that's the foundation of discipleship. And what we're seeing here is that God is constantly active in our life. Always. There isn't a second that goes by where he is not fully conscious, aware, and active in your life. How many of you live that way? Yesterday I'm mowing the lawn. And I, I got a, a lawn tractor uh, because the first time I mowed our front lawn by hand about killed me. So, um, so we got a lawn tractor. I call it my pony. So I'm riding my pony through the backyard, whacking down the, the tall growth, and I see a dead robin there in the lawn. And we have a lot of robins and birds at our house. It's wonderful. I mean, we have all different kinds of birds, and I love birds. And, uh, and especially the robins, because we watch them play. They fight over the tadpoles in our little pool. And, uh, and this one, I think, was the one that kept getting forced out. So he didn't get a lot of tadpoles. And he didn't get a lot of worms. Because all of the other robins would pick on him. And he didn't, it wasn't able to establish his territory. And he died. What do you think came into my mind when I looked at this dead robin? What comes into your mind when I tell you the story of this dead robin? Not a sparrow falls that he doesn't know about. That's right. Not a sparrow falls that he doesn't know about. That that robin was important to God. And if that robin was important to God, how much more so are we? That's what Jesus told us. Guess where he told us that? In his largest teaching on the law. This is all part of God's plan of making us into disciples. Such that if you look at Matthew, what the way Matthew ends is with the theme all sewed up together. What does Jesus say as he's parting? Go ye therefore. Go. Yep. Making disciples. Making disciples. And, and I'm going to... Uh, and, and, 
this is a rabbit trail, but it's not a rabbit trail because it's very germane to what we're talking about. Um, verse 19, chapter 28 of Matthew, it says, Go. A go in English is an imperative. It's a command. Go. Right? That's not what's there in the original language. What's there is a participle, which could never be an imperative. So it could be better translated, as you are going, going being the participle, not only that, but it's an active present, as you are going, as you are living your life, as you are walking out this door and doing whatever is next for you to do today, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Right? So this is about taking God's kingdom. We are responsible as ambassadors and, uh, and the way that we live our life to represent Christ. He has to impact us first. And as a result of the revelation of his loving kindness, we respond with a song of love that is lived out towards other people. That's why I started with my two-verse song this morning. Seriously. I was thinking about that. Um, you know, it's an I love you song. And that's what we're doing. Discipleship is an I love you song. As you were going, do this. And then he gives us this last last phrase. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What do you think the good king would do? He's going to go there first. He's not going to put 3,000 men in a circle around him with his general to protect him. He's going to say, let's go and do the mission that God has put before us, even though it's insane. Right? That's what's happening that David's learning that is going to translate into him being an effective leader. There are a lot of things that David messes up. And, uh, and we'll, we'll get a lot of opportunity to look at that because this is where we live. We live in a messed up world making messed up choices and God calls us to something higher. He does not call us to unmess up the world but what he calls us to is to have our hearts right and, and following him to be transformed into the image of his son, to be conformed to the image of his son, to have a heart after God so that when you see a robin on the ground or you see a rainbow in the sky, that you immediately reflect back, remember what God is doing because that's there for you um, so that you can walk effectively teaching all people. So let's go ahead and close there. Um, I, I do want to point out we did make it all the way through chapter 26. There's a lot in there. I was hoping to get through 27, but we'll do that next week. So, uh, Lord, we just thank you for all that you're teaching us. And it's, uh, it's so rich as we go through this, which is um, why we labor over it uh, for such a length of time, because we know that there are so many subtleties that you would teach us um, and it's so deep and that it affects us at all stages of our lives and that there are things that we hear and learn that sometimes they're filed away for future use sometimes they're a reflection on the past and sometimes they're an immediate call to action now Lord we would ask that you would give us 
uh, revelation of your truth through the Holy Spirit, that we would know that which you've done, that which you're doing, and that which you will do, such that we can join you in that. And Lord, um, soften our hearts, uh, allow us to hear and respond. Lord, we, uh, we lift to you this time this morning as we go from here into the morning service and we struggle through Ecclesiastes, which is a book about the world. And, uh, and you know, you can turn on the news and you hear Ecclesiastes. And, uh, and, and Lord, we want to not get discouraged in that, but we want to see what you're doing so that we can join you and be energized in that, that we can uh, be borne up on wings of eagles, Lord, and have our... Our, uh, our spirit refreshed. And Lord, we thank you for this. We ask for your protection about us as we go from here. We ask for uh, your blessing, Lord. Um, and we do that uh, boldly. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know what else to say about that. We, we need you and we love you. Lord, we thank you for all of this and we uh, ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, to honor him and to honor you in all things, we pray. Amen.